Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist and self-growth coach for women in helping professions. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology and self-growth. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. So let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. Um, As has been the case with pretty much all of my solo episodes in season two thus far, my daughter is sleeping right next to me. So we will see how this recording goes and I apologize in advance if there's any baby noises or crying or don't apologize if you enjoy the baby noises. Um, But semi-tangentially related to my daughter, today we're going to be talking about sleep. Um, And the reason I say tangentially related to my daughter is because I don't get much sleep um, these days. She was a great sleeper like the first two weeks and is no longer a great sleeper. Um, But we're talking about sleep because this is something that I think everybody can relate to, specifically not getting good quality sleep. And it doesn't have to be necessarily like going on in your life right now, but there are periods in our lifetime where we all do not get the sleep that we need. And I'll talk about some reasons, but you know, just going through my life, obviously right now I have a newborn, so that's disrupting my sleep. When I was in grad school, staying up late, doing projects, homework, readings, I mean college, I know my sleep was horrible. (laughs) Um, Living the college life, um, you know, just mood can uh, impact our sleep. At the time I'm recording this, it is the Monday after uh, daylight savings. And so, you know, daylight savings impacts our sleep. There's so many things that impact our sleep. Um, And sleep is extremely important to our overall physical and mental health. So I thought this would be a good episode and something that hopefully a lot of you can relate to and get some good information out of. Um, We know that good quality sleep impacts so many aspects of our functioning, yet the CDC estimates that one in three adults in the United States does not get enough sleep. So that means maybe one in three of you listening to this right now are nodding your head and being like, yes, that's me. I do not get enough sleep. Sleep is also a form of self-care. And I say this because when we think of self-care, many people will jump to like bubble baths and face masks. I don't know, a glass of wine. But when we think about the basic self-care, we need to think about things like sleeping, showering, eating, etc. So therefore, my goal with this episode is to discuss the importance of sleep, discuss the impact of poor sleep on our mental and physical health, and ways to improve sleep quality, which is something that I know I need and many of you listening probably need as well. So... I mentioned that, you know, one in three adults in the United States do not get enough sleep. So how much sleep do we actually need? 
Um, obviously there's going to be individual differences and the quantity of sleep is dependent on age. We also have to factor in quality. However, so for teens, it's generally recommended about eight to 10 hours per night as a psychologist that works with teens. I can tell you that none of my teenagers sleep eight to 10 hours a night, like maybe on the weekends, but not per night. Um, for adults aged 18 to 60, it is recommended to get at least seven hours of sleep per night. And then for adults over the age of 60, anywhere between seven and nine hours is the recommendation. Um, so like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, not only do we want to think about the quantity of sleep, we also want to think about the quality of sleep. So like you could sleep for eight hours, but if you're restless, if you're tossing and turning, your quality of sleep is not good. So for any of you listening that have a Fitbit and Apple watch probably does this too, but I'm not that fancy. Like my Fitbit, <laughs> granted there needs to be like a new mom setting on the Fitbit. If there is, please message me. Like if there's a postpartum setting that I don't know about, please send me a message so I can set my Fitbit to that. Um, my Fitbit tells me all the time I have horrible quality of sleep. I'm actually going to, um, as I'm talking to you all bring up, um, my Fitbit chart and everything. So if you don't have a Fitbit, you, um, you won't be familiar with this, but it gives you a sleep score. And I believe you're supposed to have a sleep score above 80. I wouldn't know because, um, going through my Fitbit, let's see, I am, Ooh, I cannot even tell you the last time I had over an 80. So I am recording this on March 15th. Oh, here. The last time I had a score uh, above 80, which indicates good quality of sleep, not even excellent. So maybe above 90 is supposed to be excellent, was January 11th, the night going into January 11th, which was the day my daughter was born. So that makes sense. Um, but it gives you a sleep score like fair. Um, most of my sleep score is fair or poor. Um, here recently, but it, you know, calculates how many times you're awake and restless, deep sleep, all that kind of stuff. So it's one thing to get eight hours of sleep. It's another thing to get eight hours of quality of sleep. So when individuals do not get enough sleep or their sleep quality is low, we refer to that as sleep deprivation. And this can be either acute or chronic. So acute, short-term, chronic, long-term. So some signs, if you're listening, that you might be sleep deprived include being fatigued, Irritable, having changes in your mood, maybe difficulty concentrating, more forgetful than usual, um, reduced physical strength, diminished ability to fight off infections, um, as well as reduced sex drive. So those are just some signs that you might be sleep deprived. Obviously, all those signs could be attributed to other things as well, but just to kind of get you in the mindset if you feel like, okay, my quality of sleep hasn't been that great here recently. If any of those things apply to you, it may be an indication that you're sleep deprived. So like I said at the beginning, I was going to talk about some reasons why people have poor sleep. And I mentioned, you know, being a new mom and, you know, grad school, college. So those are all factors. Shift work is a huge one. So if you are working overnight, your sleep schedule is going to be off because, you know, your circadian rhythm's off, things like that. Or if you just have a uh, work schedule that varies. So maybe some nights you're working second shift, third shift, first shift, 
that's going to impact it. Um, health issues. So a multitude of health issues can impact your sleep. Um, some of them include chronic pain. If you're in pain, you're not going to sleep very well. Substance abuse, uh, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. So a host of mental health concerns, obesity can impact your sleep, especially if your obesity is related to difficulties, um, breathing, or if you have, uh, sleep apnea, and I'm going to make the clarification. You do not, not all people with sleep apnea are obese. Um, narcolepsy, chronic fatigue syndrome. There are so many health issues that can impact your sleep. The sleep environment is another huge one. So like if you, I don't know, have an apartment in New York city and it's really noisy outside and you haven't like adjusted to it, that's going to impact your sleep. If your room is too hot or too cold, um, and we'll talk about this more towards the end about like making your sleep environment conducive to sleep. Uh, the use of electronic devices and blue light. I know we all do this. I preach to my teens that I work with all the time, turn off your phone before bed, blue light's bad for you, and I am up on my phone. Um, you know, do as I say, not as I do, I guess. Um, but blue light can really impact um, sleep, and I'll talk more about that. Uh, caring for a person during the night, so such as a parent taking care of a newborn like me, um, or being a caregiver for a medically complex child or elderly person. Like if you have to get up and take care of somebody, that's going to disrupt your sleep. Meeting deadlines for school or work. Um, so like if you have a big project at work and you are cramming, staying up all night the night before it's due, it's going to result in little sleep. Or if it's just a giant project and you know, maybe you have a family with kids. So you come home from work, you prioritize family time, the kids are in bed, and then you start working on it at eight or nine, and then you're staying up. So that's going to impact sleep. There's plenty other things that impact sleep as well, but those are some of the few. Um, since this is a psychology podcast, before I continue, I did want to briefly discuss the difference between sleep deprivation and insomnia. Because many of us are sleep deprived, but we do not necessarily have insomnia. However, individuals with insomnia are sleep deprived. And I also want to bring this up because I feel like insomnia is one of those terms that people throw around kind of like OCD, like, oh, I'm so OCD. Like how many times have you heard somebody say, oh, my insomnia is so bad. I couldn't sleep last night. Like last night, one, one time it does not equate to insomnia. So let's take a second to break down what insomnia is. So as with any mental or physical health concern, we have to look at a specific set of criteria to determine whether or not something meets the definition of a disorder. So insomnia is considered a disorder. We need to look at its criteria to determine if one's sleep deprivation or poor sleep is in fact insomnia or if it's just low quality sleep. Insomnia is defined in the DSM-5 as a dissatisfaction with sleep quantity or quality with one or more of the following symptoms. So difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, characterized by frequent awakenings or trouble returning to sleep after awakenings, and early morning awakening with an inability to return to sleep. Additionally, the sleep disturbance causes clinically significant distress or impairment in daytime functioning as evidenced by at least one of the following. So fatigue or low energy, daytime sleepiness, impaired attention, concentration, or memory, mood disturbance, behavioral difficulties, impaired occupational or academic function, impaired interpersonal or social function, and negative affect on caregiver or family functioning. The key is 
when we're looking at the definition, the sleep difficulty occurs at least three nights per week and is present for at least three months and occurs despite adequate opportunity for sleep. It also should be noted that sleep disturbance is not better attributed to another medical condition, disorder, or explainable factor. So, for example, (laughs) uh, I have a newborn. She's not three months yet, but I'm sure at the three-month mark, I will have difficulty maintaining sleep at least three nights per week, and it results in fatigue or low energy and a lot of other things. But because my poor sleep is due to a newborn, it doesn't mean I meet criteria for insomnia. So therefore, when we're trying to determine, am I just like sleep deprived? Do I actually have insomnia? We have to look at the specific set of criteria for insomnia. If you do not meet that criteria, you do not have insomnia, but that doesn't mean you can't have sleep deprivation or poor sleep. Additionally, sleep deprivation can be due to a variety of factors. So like I said, you know, people with insomnia are sleep deprived, but sleep deprivation doesn't have that caveat of like, it can't be related to another disorder, etc. So increased stress, excitement, drugs and alcohol, pregnancy, illness, postpartum, all of that will better explain the sleep disturbance than insomnia and still means that you're sleep deprived. Like it doesn't excuse, like just because I have a newborn doesn't mean like, oh, I'm not sleep deprived. I'm still sleep deprived. It's just because of her. So I hope that clarification makes sense. Um, So I feel like a lot of times on my podcast, I always like talk about negative things first. So I really wanted to start with the benefits of good quality of sleep. So start with some positive things. So at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that sleep is very important for both our mental and physical health. And So I'm just going to start by listing a bunch of things that, um, good sleep does for us. And then you'll see when I go into like poor sleep, it's a lot of the opposites, but benefits of good sleep. It keeps your heart healthy and we all want a strong heart. Uh, melatonin, which is a hormone that regulates our sleep weights, wake cycle is thought to, um, one, it's going to be produced more regularly and adequately if we're getting good sleep but it's also thought to protect against cancer as it appears to suppress the growth of tumors um light is actually thought to reduce melatonin levels and i'll probably say this a million times um, throughout this episode so it's important that you're not looking at light before you're going to bed such as your phone tablet it's also important that your sleep area is dark um, so that your brain produces the melatonin that it needs. Good sleep can reduce stress, reduce inflammation. It makes you more energized and alert the next day. And additionally, when we feel active and alert and energized throughout the day, it in turn increases the chances that we're going to have another good night's sleep the day after because we're productive, we're using up our energy, and then we'll be well, like we'll be tired out so we'll have a good night's sleep the next day. Uh, Good sleep also improves memory by processing your day, making connections between events, sensory input, feelings, and memories. Deep sleep in particular is an important time for your brain to make memories and links. Thus, getting more quality sleep will help us remember and process things better. Good sleep helps with weight management as our hormones, which regulate appetite, are regulated when we sleep. 
It may help reduce the risk of depression due to its impact on serotonin. And overall, it just helps the body repair itself. Like if we are not getting sleep, and I know I just said I'm going to talk about the positives and I'm going into a negative, but if we are not getting sleep, our body physically like wears down and breaks down. So those are a number of good things about sleep. So let's talk about what happens when we have poor sleep. So I kind of broke this up into different areas. So first I'm going to talk about the immune system. Sleep deprivation increases our risk of catching an infection or getting sick, as well as impacts the speed at which we recover from an illness. The example I use all the time. So in graduate school in particular, I never got sick. Like during the semester, I never got sick. The second, basically, oh no, usually a couple days into Christmas break, summer break, whatever, which in grad school, it's not really a break. You just don't have classes, but you're still doing clinical work. I would get sick, like without fail. And it was because I was, well, stressed is one of it, but I was getting such poor sleep throughout the semester when my my body finally like had a chance to relax I would get sick. I would, my immune system was not great. And it took me a while to recover from my illness because I was sleep deprived. Um, with regard to weight. So as I mentioned with good quality sleep, uh, sleep affects the hormones that control feelings of hunger and fullness and regulate appetite. And it can also, um, trigger the release of insulin. Additionally, stress increases the release of cortisol in our body, and stress can not only be a cause of poor sleep, but a consequence of poor sleep. So between the hormones and stress, poor sleep can increase the likelihood that we gain weight, and research does show that individuals with poor sleep are more likely to be obese compared to individuals that get high quality of sleep. Uh, sleep disruption, therefore in turn can cause increased fat storage, increase in body weights, and actually put people at higher risk for type two diabetes with regard to the cardiovascular system. So like I said, good sleep keeps our heart healthy. So poor sleep (laughs) does the opposite. So adequate sleep helps the heart vessels heal and rebuild and affects processes that maintain blood pressure, sugar levels, and inflammation control. Thus too little sleep may increase a person's risk of cardiovascular disease. Heart attacks and strokes are also more likely to occur uh, during the early morning, which is thought to be in part due to the way sleep interacts with blood vessels. So if we're getting poor sleep um and our blood vessels are not healing properly it puts us at an increased risk for heart attack hormones so insufficient sleep can affect hormone production including the production of growth growth hormones and testosterone as i mentioned when talking about weight it also causes the body to release additional stress hormones such as norepinephrine and cortisol Poor sleep can also impact fertility. So when we're talking about hormones, poor sleep may affect the production of hormones that boost fertility. With regard to our brain, sleep deprivation affects the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain we use to like reason, uh, as well as the amygdala, which deals with emotions. So a lack of sleep makes it harder for a person, additionally, to form new memories, which can affect learning. So we're 
poor reasoners where um, prefrontal lobe also can is like the executive functioning so decision making things like that so we have more difficulty with that we're more emotional and we can't learn and make new memories in addition to all of these health effects that I've listed, sleep can limit it, limit one's ability to pay attention, react quickly, and make decisions, um, which, I mean, you can think of a slew of situations where that would be bad. So, for example, driving a car. So it would increase the risk of car accidents, um, increase, you know, like attention in school. If you're in school, um, increase your or decrease your ability to pay attention in school, sorry. Um, some other effects of poor sleep, poor coordination, focus, attention, other executive functioning skills like managing time, language. Um, as you can imagine, if you don't have adequate executive functioning skills, it makes it extremely difficult for you to complete tasks because you're unable to pay attention, adequately process and recall information, manage time, etc. And I'm sure, like, I know I just listed a bunch of things, but we can all relate. Like, I know, well, one, having a newborn, so being sleep-deprived just is my life right now. But, like, certain words are much harder for me to find at times when I'm, like, really tired. Um, for example, I went to get my uh, first COVID vaccine the other day, and the lady asked me like the name of my manager at work. Cause I got it through work and it, I literally drew a blank. I could not think at all. Um, and there's been other times that just like certain words don't come to me, or I'm sure like you can think of times where you had poor sleep and you're really like irritable the next day. So even if it's just one night, I'm sure a lot of these things, um, are relatable when thinking about like psychological impacts of um, poor sleep in the short term, poor sleep is associated with greater negative and fewer positive emotions, greater difficulty modifying one's emotional responses and changes in reactivity to emotionally salient information. So we're more moody, irritable, all those fun things. I know that definitely applies to me in the longer term. So if you have more chronic disrupted sleep or chronic inadequate sleep, it's a risk factor for the development of a range of psychiatric illnesses such as anxiety and depression, which is twofold because depression and anxiety can also disrupt your sleep. So it's like a bi-directional relationship. So now to, I mean, I was going to say to the good stuff, but hopefully a lot of that was informative. But if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know, for most episodes, I like to, towards the end, talk about like, what can we do about this? How can we change whatever the topic is I'm talking about? So how can we improve our sleep? So in the mental health world, we address sleep problems through what we call sleep hygiene, which basically refers to behavioral and environmental changes you make to help improve your sleep. First, it is important to address any known factors that may be contributing to poor sleep. So once you assess these factors, it's important to change the things that you know are negatively impacting your sleep if you can. And I'll get to that in a second. So for example, if you stay on your phone and I'm talking to myself right here <laughs> until the moment you go to bed, one change you can make is putting your phone away an hour before you go to bed. Or if you know that you procrastinate on work and then you stay up really late to finish it, resulting in poor sleep, that's something you can address. You can address your procrastination, you know, set a schedule where you do work, etc. 
So like I said a minute ago, obviously there are things you may not be able to change that is contributing to your poor sleeps. Like I can't change the fact I have a newborn. And as much as I would like to change her sleep schedule so she sleeps through the night, that's just not developmentally typical. Um, So it's important in those situations to optimize the time you can sleep. So for example, for me, not all the time, but many times, so my daughter usually falls asleep except with daylight savings that threw her off um, around like 7 to 7.30 and then doesn't feed till 10. Some nights I will just stay up, but a lot of times I'll try to go to bed around like 8. So I can get a couple extra hours of sleep before we really actually start our night routine. Um, So that's just one way to optimize and that's just something I do. After assessing and addressing those known factors, um, there are a number of other things you can do to um, that have been shown to help sleep. Or maybe you're like, I don't really know why I'm getting poor sleep. Like there's nothing. I'm not taking care of anybody. I don't leave work till the last minute. I just don't really sleep. So consistent sleep and wake times. And I know this is really hard, especially for those of us that work a uh, typical like Monday through Friday job, like eight to five or whatever it is. And then on the weekends, you know, we don't have anything to do, or maybe we do have things to do because of kids. And, you know, maybe on a Wednesday night, the family's out till nine o'clock, but other nights you're home and everything. So the more you can keep a consistent wake and sleep time, it keeps you on a schedule and keeps your circadian rhythms consistent. Avoid naps during the day. So napping during the day, although sometimes needed, relatable right now, it <laughs> can throw off the consistent sleep schedule and then cause you to stay up later at night. So if you, you know, it's a Saturday, it's a lazy Saturday, you take a nap from two to five, you're then going to most likely stay up later and not stick to that consistent sleep schedule. Only use the bed for sleep and sex. So this is a big one that um, we learned in grad school and I talked to um, my patients about. Granted, I work with children and teens, so with my children I just say like sleep. So avoid things like eating in bed or watching the TV in bed. So why? Our brain makes associations with certain things in our environment. We want our brain and our body to associate our bed with sleep. If we do other activities in our bed such as eating work. This was a big thing I worked on. A lot of my teens that were in virtual learning, they would do their schoolwork in bed. Um, Our brain, it causes our brain to associate our bed with awake time activities, and thus it makes it more difficult for us to fall asleep. Another thing you can do, leave the room when you're unable to sleep. So similar to what I just described with like our brain making associations, this will help keep the association that your bed and your bedroom is for sleep. If you're unable to fall asleep or you're tossing and turning in bed, our body will associate that restlessness with bed and thus make it more difficult to fall asleep. So it's important to get up about 15 minutes after you're unable to fall asleep and then go do a quiet activity such as reading or journaling, not playing on your phone or computer or watching a movie with light because that's not going to help you fall asleep. But reading, journaling meditation, anything like that until you feel tired and want to go back to bed. Make the environment conducive to sleep. So I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but make it a good temperature so you're not too hot, not too cold. I sound like 
Goldilocks. <laughs> um, make sure your room's dark. Make sure like your bed is comfortable, comfortable pillows, blankets, etc. Whatever makes you feel calm, relaxed, and will help you sleep. Engage in relaxation exercises before bed. So deep breathing, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, anything that helps you calm down before bed. Exercise 30 minutes per day. We know exercise has a slew of mental and physical health benefits. Sleep is one of them. So keeping your body active during the day. Don't exercise necessarily right before bed um, because then you're like awake and alert and your endorphins are going. But try to get at least 30 minutes in per day. Go for a walk, dance around in your room. Reduce caffeine and alcohol intake, especially closer to bedtime. Turn off electronics at least an hour before bed. I've talked about electronics and blue lights, but we know from research that blue light um, that comes off electronics impacts the production of melatonin, which disrupts our ability to sleep. If you're doing all those things and it's not really working, or if you meet criteria for insomnia, which I talked about earlier in this episode, there is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia known as CBTI, and it's an intervention specifically targeted to treat insomnia. It addresses the negative thoughts and actions that keep you awake at night and is generally recommended as the first line of treatment for people with insomnia. It is also equally as effective as medication. So CPTI teaches individuals to recognize and change beliefs that affects the person's ability to sleep, particularly any negative thoughts and worries that keep the person awake. So if you are a person that is really anxious at the end of the day, thinking about everything you have to get done the next day, thinking of your to-do list, those thoughts are going to keep you awake. If you have a pattern of poor sleep, you might have negative thoughts saying like, oh, you know, I'm going to try to go to bed, but I'm not going to be able to sleep because my sleep quality is horrible. I can never sleep. Like all of those thought patterns can actually reinforce and keep you up at night. So CBTI helps address those. Um, if the person has difficulty falling asleep, cause remember insomnia, it might not be falling asleep. You might be able to fall asleep fine, but then you can't stay asleep. Um, CBTI can also help you eliminate the anxiety cycle that I just kind of mentioned, maintaining you from being able to fall asleep. So some techniques, um, in CBTI includes a stimulus control therapy. So that involves removing factors that condition your mind to resist sleep. You may be encouraged to set a consistent sleep and wake time, avoid naps, only use the bed for sleep and sex, leave the room after a specific period of time of not being able to sleep. All these things that I already mentioned, but it's called stimulus control. Relaxation techniques, so progressive muscle relaxation, biofeedback, if um, you're uh, mental health provider is trained in that breathing exercises are always that can reduce anxiety before bedtime and practicing these before bed can help regulate your breathing, reduce your heart rate, encourage less muscle tension, and therefore relax you overall, making it easier to fall asleep. Uh, sleep restriction is another technique used in CBTI, which includes decreasing the amount of time you spend in bed, including naps, so that you are more tired at night and your sleep, and as your sleep improves, so does your time in bed. Uh, there are a slew of additional techniques that may be used depending on your certain circumstances. So that is always a um, potential 
uh, intervention and treatment. And one thing I feel like I've been saying this a lot here recently on these episodes, which I'm glad is that you don't have to have something detrimentally wrong or life-changing to go to therapy. Like you can go to therapy because you're having difficulty sleeping. Yes. Poor sleep, as I have said on this podcast, significantly impacts so many areas of our lives. So it might feel overwhelming and detrimental, but if you just want help with, um, sleep, that is a valid and legitimate reason to seek out therapy. Every reason to seek out therapy is valid and legitimate. Additionally, you can always do sleep medications. I always have to make the disclaimer before taking any medications, you want to consult with your medical doctor. There are over-the-counter medications that can aid with sleep and natural remedies such as melatonin. Additionally, since it is a medication, (laughs) um, doctors honestly don't recommend relying on prescription medications for sleep in the long term. Uh, but there are a number of sleep medications that can be prescribed to help, particularly with insomnia. As always, these are just a number of suggestions to help with sleep based on research. Each individual is different and you will need to figure out what works best for you. So there may be some trial and error. So, you know, you might find that meditation or relaxation exercises really don't work for you, but changing up your bedroom and sleep environment really does help or vice versa. Additionally, this podcast is not a replacement for therapy. So if you are really struggling with your sleep, like I just mentioned, um, seek out professional help. There is somebody out there that can really help you. There are specific like sleep psychologists as well. Fun fact, but yeah, I hope this was helpful. I hope a lot of people can relate to it. I, felt like this was a topic, you know, some of my topics are very niched, um, and very specific to certain, um, populations and listeners, but I feel like sleep is something that, you know, we all do it so we can all relate to it. And so if you are struggling with your sleep, I hope this was helpful and informative. So that is a wrap on this episode and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.